Welcome to Little Atoms on Resonance 104.4 FM, a live talk show about ideas and culture with an emphasis on ideas of the Enlightenment. Little Atoms is presented by Neil Denny, Podrick Reedy, Richard Sanderson and Becky Hogg, as well as regular guest presenters. Little Atoms actively promotes science, freedom of expression, scepticism and secular humanism. Our guests bring ideas that are challenging, sometimes controversial, often polemical, but always interesting. Utopia. Um, my name is Becky Hogg. I'm a presenter uh, with uh, Little Atoms, which incidentally um, airs every Friday at 7pm on Resonance 104 FM and can also be podcast. Um, on my left is uh, Gia Milinovic. Uh, Gia uh, is a presenter, writer and blogger, uh, specialising mainly um, in new media and film. To my right, Angela Saini. Um, Angela, um, she's an independent science journalist based in London and her latest first book is... Um, or uh, Geek Nation, How Indian Science is Taking Over the World. And then to my far right is writer and uh, broadcaster Ken Hollings. Um, he's the author of Welcome to Mars, Science in the American Century, 1947-59, to and also Destroy All Monsters. Um, his latest book, his upcoming book, is The Bright Labyrinth, Sex, Death and Design in the Digital Regime. Um, so those are our speakers tonight. I kind of feel like tonight is a bit of a wake actually. It's, uh, it's a wake uh, to celebrate, to commiserate the demise of techno-utopianism. Um, because if utopia is our desire to be anywhere but here, and techno-utopianism is uh, a way to use the future, to kind of technology to project ourselves into the future, then what with Twitter and super injunctions, what with the Arab Spring, WikiLeaks, um, I mean, tonight, Adam Curtis's film, uh, what is it called? Um, All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace is airing. I mean, this is the real death knell for cyber-utopianism in that documentary uh, right there. And when the US State Department have a policy called internet freedom, you know the party's over. So the future's here, and it's perhaps a little, a little messier than expected. Um, so what happened to techno-utopianism, and, and can we ever find it again? Ken, I wanted to ask you to sort of, first of all, to speak, to give us the long view on utopias, dystopias, and the whole techno shebang? Well, I think, first of all, um, it's <clears throat> entirely likely that uh, this should be a wake. Wakes also celebrations, of course. We shouldn't uh, completely forget that. Um, but at the same time, I think we're probably holding a wake for a creature that doesn't even know it's dead yet. Um, before I came here, I, I went into a, a design uh, bookshop. And uh, with the, I made a deal with myself. The moment I saw the word utopia anywhere in the bookshop... I would leave. I was there for two minutes. Would have been less, but I decided to discard all uh, neologisms using parts of the word utopia. Two minutes I was in there, and I was out again. That was it. Thank you. Um, it's a word that we use so often. It just gets used over and over again. It's one of these great thematic um, lodestones that people return to. But I'm, I'm concerned that we've kind of lost sight of its of its origins, its nature. I think we've lost sight of, it, of just how very satirical the idea of utopia is. I mean, if we go back to, to Thomas More's um, original text in the early um, 16th century, um, we have the, the, the term coined. It's actually a, a, a rather interesting play on two ancient Greek words, one meaning the good place and the other meaning 
no place. So in other words, he's already um, putting forward utopia as being really a kind of linguistic idea, which has no fixed meaning, it has no location, it has no place. And so in a sense, the, the, the kind of political doctrine that he's outlining in utopia is already one that can really only exist as a proposition. And the reason why I find that exciting and interesting is I was, I was having a conversation a while back with a, a colleague and we were talking about um, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's 1870 essay, Works and Days, and about how this, this, this essay starts to talk about technology and about machines in terms of their relationship to humans. And, and my colleague <coughs> made the very interesting point that she said, it's very hard to find literature prior to Emerson's essay that deals with these issues quite as explicitly. You can find the odd example like Metri's writings on the, on the human machine. Um, but effectively, I think you need to go towards political science, political theory, to find this kind of technology being, being um, articulated. So Hobbes and Leviathan, um, Wealth of Nations, um, Francis Bacon's The New Atlantis, and, of course, um, Moore's Utopia, I think are all actually technological propositions about how we organise ourselves, how we organise our resources. Utopia is not Arcadia. Utopia is not paradise. It's not the land of cocaine. It's not liquor land. It's not any of these fabrications in which nature, beneficent, hands over the goods to us, you know, just uh, supplies our every need and wish. That's nature corrected. Utopia is nature replaced. So for me, techno-utopia, tautological. It, it, you know, utopia already is a technological idea, which is also why I find it satirical. And we should never lose sight of the satirical, because we can learn an awful lot out of satire, particularly about ourselves. Gia, you've been um, online for, what, over 15 years now? You said you first got online in 1994. Yeah. Um, what did this particular <coughs> utopia look like to you then? And um, this particular techno-utopia, or just utopia, if we've decided that's a tautology. Um, and what's changed? What went wrong? Well, I, I went online um, in '94. I was working for the BBC for a technology program, and it was the uh, our program was the only place in the BBC that had a modem. So people would walk by our office and go, "Oh, we hear you have the internet," and people would come and look. So it was my job to learn about the internet, learn about how people were using the internet, and then and, and then report on it. And it was the most amazing, amazing place ever. Um, it, it was pre-advertising, pre-anything, and it was. It, I just saw it as this, as this free space where we could kind of reconfigure society. We could think what we want, say what we want, have conversations with people that we would never meet in, in the real world, and it was marvelous and free for about ten years, um, and and then. Advertising started to take over, the marketers started to take over, blogging happened, which initially was, was very exciting and brilliant. We've, we've now got to the point where you, you can't really disagree with someone online and have a big long conversation about it. Uh, it, it if you disagree with someone, they immediately tell you to fuck off. Immediately. You just can't have a conversation. If you're a woman, it's even worse than that. And the, the initial thing that I, that, that I loved about the internet was that my body didn't matter at all. It, it, people just cared about my mind. And it's got to the point where my body now does matter on the internet. And I think it, that's, it, that's a terrible shame for me. The idea that our, um, 
our physical selves uh, don't matter in our daily life and, and we have you know, equal opportunities and all that stuff is really important and that just seems to have disappeared on the internet. And what, what do you think has changed? What do you think has brought that change about? I, I see it as, I, I think Facebook killed it all, really. I think they brought the, the kind of college mentality on, the kind of male college mentality, um, and that has just permeated the web. And, and that, yeah, it's like everywhere you go is like talking to kind of really rude 18-year-old boys. <laughs> Sad. Angela, you've been involved in investigating over the past few years how um, India is sort of taking the science scape for its own and seeing its own future in, in, in technology and in technological deploy development and deployment. I wonder if listening to these sorts of views you think that we're only seeing half of the picture and, and what you think the other half is. See, when you talk about utopia and you call it a different place, you call it the internet, which is a, uh, is a world outside this world, um, that's not my definition of utopia. My definition is that uh, is the effort on all our parts to create a utopia here on Earth, um, around us in our society. And it's this idea that keeps recurring all the time, the idea that technology can be transformative and change a society and make it better and almost make it perfect is um, something, is a theme that comes up you see, when you see societies progress and become scientific societies and technological societies, it happens regularly. So it happened here, it happened in the US, it happened in Japan, and now it's happening in India and China and across Asia, actually. So there is this real um, feeling that you can take technology, harness it, and if you're clever enough about it, you can create idealised societies here on Earth for everyone, not just... I mean, when you talk about the internet, Gia, and you're saying that... Um, you know, it was great when there were fewer people on it and that <laughs> frat boy element didn't come yeah. in. It was better when it was just the clever geeks on it and not everybody else. And in places like India, the idea is that these good societies, these ideal societies, should be for everyone. Yeah. You know, absolutely yeah. everyone. Which is um, really what a utopia should be. I was going to say, I saw a real interesting difference in the way that Asia thinks about technology. I was working on a science fiction film and went over to Japan and was talking with the marketing department at 20th Century Fox, and they said they have a real problem with science fiction films marketing them to Japanese society. They were, they, uh, were released iRobot, and because the Japanese can't imagine that a robot would be bad, the, the film completely thought they had no, no way of selling this at all. <laughs> and and that, that is a really big difference, I think, between our two kind of societies, whereas here, probably World War II probably made everyone hate science and technology, and they, they only see the bad in it, or often see the bad in it. That is a weird thing. There is this love of the new in countries like Korea, especially if you go to South Korea, there is no concept of this idea of um, technology being a bad thing. People mm. love it, they lap it up, whereas in Britain I think we're always slightly suspicious, slightly yeah. scared and on the back foot whenever something new comes out, our first instinct is how will this harm us? To what extent does that come from the ideas you were talking about, sort of industrial revolution utopias and how they then turned into dystopias, do you think? Um, I think to a limited degree. I think, I think it's interesting that you get someone like um, um, Charles-Marie uh, Fournier in the... Fournier, get, him, get his name right in a second. The early part of the 19th century creating these, these 
idealised utopian barracks in which uh, people's lives will be organised and it's about their, their, their use and their value rather than their gender or their, their income or whatever it be. And these were going to be created in beautiful, huge glass domes. You know, I mean, it's almost looking ahead to um, Buckminster Fuller's um, geodesic domes and, and his thinking, well, what they, the basic proposition that he offered in the, in the 1960s, utopia or oblivion. Um, as if you know they, they were somehow mutually exclusive, and it, you know one had to make a choice, a definite choice between one or the other, um, which kind of brings us to the bad robot and and, and the, the the inability to conceive of it. And it, there's this idea. I mean, you said you know what, um, you know we can take technology. I don't think we take technology. We're so intimately involved with technology. We're so almost on a molecular level um, related to it that we. It almost takes us. You know, we're already in a relationship, but I think in the West we're still a bit sceptical about it. It's still, in a weird, in a weird way, it's still technology is second nature, and we're still a bit suspicious of it. And I think that's part of it. Also, you've got to remember the Japanese gave us Astro Boy, and one of the great, you know, and the beauty of Astro Boy is that you know it's a post-war phenomenon. Um, there's no real equivalent to it in, in the West. Um, I mean, just a little bit of background created by the cartoonist Osamu Tezuka, uh, Tetsuan Atom is in fact a super-powered, atomic, jet-propelled, with a machine gun in his butt, nine-year-old kid. Mm. Really. Really, really. And, and the interesting thing is it's usually missed out of the mythology in the West is that he is a child who has been neglected by his scientist father, goes out to play, gets run over, killed. So the, so the father actually builds a, a robot replica of the son and then rejects him because... The child doesn't grow, doesn't change. Plus, he's got a machine gun in his butt. <laughs> um, and and we, we have no equivalent to that kind of mythos uh, in the West, because most of that gets removed. And it, it, it's a kind of theme that gets played out over and over again. There was a great moment. Um, he has an official birthday, uh, Astro Boy. That's one atom. And I think it's like the 4th of April, 2003. That's when he's supposed to have come online. And it was at that moment that a particular... Um, uh, Japanese uh, roboticist uh, announced that they were going to create a new project. It was talking about the Apollo project. So that's anything that takes 50, 50 odd years. You know, basically from or, you know from the Wright brothers to landing on the moon. About well, 50 odd years. Um, that's an Apollo project. And the, the new Apollo project, we will create Astro in 50 years. We will have a robotic nine-year-old child. And and. You laugh, you smile, I can feel it. But, and that's almost like a Western response. And I kind of think, well, yeah, I want that kid, don't you? It's, it's weird, isn't it, that we do, we are sceptical of these ideas that seem so outlandish, and yet there are places in the world where they don't seem outlandish at all. It seems perfectly possible. I mean, in Geek Nation, one of the um, stories I want to cover was electronic governance. So in the UK, whenever they try to digitise anything the public sector, it always fails. <laughs> when they took the NHS records and tried to put them online, it just didn't work. You know, it was too expensive, just didn't, couldn't do it. Um, in India, they've been digitising land records for years. Courts are going online, entire swathes of the bureaucracy. And India has the most tangled bureaucracy in the world are going online, and they're doing it. They have the geeky manpower, and they have the belief that they can do it, that it can actually work, which is weird, that's the weirdest thing to an outsider. Not that they're actually doing it, but that they actually think they can. Yeah. 
Sure, sure. I mean, presumably somebody thought they could digitise the NHS records or that they wouldn't have started. I, I remember quite a few people told them from the beginning that it wasn't going to work, but maybe let's see if the Indians really do come, come through it better. But then why did they say at the start it's not going to work? It's perfectly possible. Is it really that difficult to put medical records on? Well, I suppose, I mean, it's probably not that hard, but I think what the UK government wanted was that civil servants had access to them, and that was just a bit dodgy for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Security, um, size, and one other thing, pick two, and I can't remember what the third thing is, but... Um, well, yeah. frat boys, I would imagine. Frat boys. Could, make a, <laughs> could be a clear and present danger. <laughs> no, and also, the whole of India votes electronically as well. Let's yeah, not forget that. they do. Um, so yeah, why are we so sceptical about why we, can, why we can't do these projects? Maybe there are these privacy issues that don't exist elsewhere. Um, India is less online than we are. Mm. You know, broadband penetration is really low. So maybe that's got something to do with it. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm interested in the, the difference that um, you spoke about right at the start, nature corrected versus nature replaced. Um, I, I certainly am using this event as a sort of early support group for the airing of Adam Curtis's do- documentary tonight. Um, Neil and I uh, had the pleasure of interviewing him for Little Atoms on Friday, and I don't know who here has seen advanced coverage of the documentary, but basically the theory is that the networked, the, the theory of the networked society has blinkered us from the machinations of power for far too long, and, and Curtis is about to dismantle the entire edifice. Um, starting with some of the great digital gurus of our time, Stuart Brand, Kevin Kelly and all that lot, and their rather naive ideas about, about democracy. But I think, I don't know, about how democracy could be enriched by getting everyone sort of speaking all at once. Um, I think that metaphor started, we, we thought that if we all had access to the network, if we all had a voice, that somehow, just as in nature... Uh, systems would emerge, we would self-govern, there would be a sort of self-organising principle that would liberate us from the, um, from the tyranny of, 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 of power, as it were. Um, that, that's almost nature replaced, whereas I think when you look at something like Facebook, we, we talk about walled gardens, and, and that, that's, that's, a cult, that's an image of cultivation, an image of nature corrected. I remember speaking to you, Ken, when, when, when I was on your show about Facebook making self-expression a sort of checkbox exercise, and we all, I don't know, I mean, your contention around Facebook is that it brings the frat boy element, but to, but to what extent is it also is the corporatisation of, of what was once a non-corporate space that's sort of really... Uh, yeah, well, obviously I think as soon as um, advertising came into the internet and then the marketers had to come along and marketers took over blogging as well, so there was the whole the Clue Train Manifesto, I don't know if any of you have read it, really amazing ideas written in about kind of 1999-2000, which is about how the internet was, had to change the way that uh, corporations and companies spoke to uh, their, their customers and, and the idea that the customers were going to be having conversations about a, a company and therefore that company should welcome those, those conversations and to a certain extent that has happened. And, um, and, and that's, that's a good thing, you know, it, that companies in theory kind of listen to us a little bit more. The, the problem, I think, coming from a kind of classic media background is when news programs started to say, and what do you think? (laughs) And inviting our opinions. And now everyone thinks that their opinion, 
it has to be listened to, which is what the problem is on the internet. And and now you go to, you know, it's been about two years since I, I read comments, I've read comments on, on the internet on anything, whether it's, you know, the Guardian site or, or YouTube or anything. I just I can't bear it. And occasionally I might dip in and I read something, some well thought out, well reasoned article that a proper journalist has spent time and effort writing. And then underneath it is just the dregs fighting in the gutter. And it's, it's depressing, it's depressing. And I, I do think there needs to be a change. <laughs> you know, we need, to, I don't want, I don't want my experience of reading some brilliant article to end with people, you know, telling, arguing about, you know, Blair and Bush, or, you know, what's it always I'm, I'm wondering to what extent, um, I'm wondering, you've mentioned people like Stuart Brown and Kelly, and, and there, there is this fascinating relationship between sort of West Coast experimental culture and, and the development of the internet, and, 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 and I don't think anyone at this panel or this room needs to be reminded about the fascinating relationship between LSD and the internet. They have all kinds of, of, of close relationships. And if we look just briefly at, at the attitudes towards LSD, they do kind of parallel some of the reservations that people have about the internet now. So, I mean, initially you get sort of tweedy uh, intellectuals like Aldous Huxley saying, well, you know, this is for the brightest and the best, the president should have it. Um, you know, we should be encouraging academics to take it in the spirit of, of, of experimentation. And you also get sort of elite figures like Claire Booth saying, I don't think that, I don't think that common people should have access to this. You know, it's just... It's too amazing. Um, and then, uh, you know, Huxley is in turn outraged because, uh, you know, a whippersnapper like uh, Timothy Leary comes along, professor of psychology at Harvard. This stuff's fantastic. We should be giving it to students. We should be getting into interactive relationships with it. This is more just psychology. There's a bigger issue here. It's reality, blah, blah, blah. Oh, my God, here comes Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters. They want to give it to everybody. You know, so he doesn't like what they're doing. And then finally it reaches the gutter and you've got people sort of you know snorting STP and freaking out in, in A&E units all over the west coast and it did and, change, it did and, change you know, society absolutely. And, and I, I would say for the better but then yeah you then you hit the 70s well <laughs> indeed so but, but but I think it's interesting this issue of how far do we let people in? I mean, you, you, you were sort of talking initially, Becky, as if somehow the, the network is, all, is automatically beneficent, it's automatically going to allow all these voices to come in. And I would say that, the, that there was already an elite built into it to begin with. You know, I think the first email was actually sent by one scientist to another yeah. um, asking whether he'd left his shaving kit in the... In the, in the hotel room at the conference where they've both been staying. So it was very much, you know, let scientists speak unto scientists. Um, and, and I think that, that, that sort of, you know, Joe Public and, and Jane Public were going to come a lot later. Um, and I think there was a definite kind of harumphy grumpiness initially, when, you know, in the well, when sort of, you know, ordinary people started using it. And, and sometimes I think these, these things, however insane, needs to play out. I, I, I remember once there was a guy who suggested, when it came to computer viruses, said, why don't we just shut off the entire internet and just let the viruses go crazy? Let's see what emerges in five years' time. What kind of strange hybrid creatures comes, you know, slouching out of, our, out of our monitors at that point? And there's a part of me that still likes that idea. Well, we built, 
we built the internet in our own image. The people who built it built it for themselves. And we can't be sorry now that it looks like the human race. This is yeah, what yeah. we should, should have yeah. been yeah. Yeah. The, the, the surprising thing is, you know, it, before the web, you were kind of protected from it in a way. And I don't think anything's changed. I think this is what it is. <laughs> it's really yeah, people are now worrying, people like Ethan Zuckerman at the Berkman Centre are worrying that we're all in our own bubbles, our me media. We're only getting stories from our friends' Twitter feeds and as, 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 as ever was. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, you, can, you can retreat back to your space now. Yeah, but it did start with coffee houses, didn't it? In, in London, the you know, different coffee houses people would meet to discuss different the issues that they were interested in, or a business or whatever, and the newsletter started and that's where newspapers came. And that, that's how it all, so it's kind of gone full circle. We're just going back to the things that we're actually interested in. I mean, and originally newspapers were just a business machine. I mean, yeah. they, they were just there to sort of transmit uh, market values, you know, events that might alter the, 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 the buying or selling price of certain commodities, yeah. etc. Although there were utopian newspaper creators that brought, you know, print, print run creators. People didn't, people saw the media and thought, I can do something better with this than what's already been done. I, 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 well, I think there you've, you've identified something which I still find really fascinating. I still think it's a really great sort of meeting point for, for debate, which is, which is on the one hand this very deterministic view of media, um, which I find very difficult to shake off. It's quite seductive, this idea that you know, media actually operates through us. And we, 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 as you said, you know, we, we create you know, the media. They are us. We're just staring back at ourselves, which is you know, what McLuhan was saying about the notion of Narcissus, that Narcissus is staring at himself, but he doesn't recognise himself. And so he becomes mesmerised by this, by, this, by this hallucination of himself. And then all kinds of things happen around him. Um, so there's this very deterministic idea that we, you know, we end up behaving, walking, talking, thinking, and as a result, all of that is the content of the media, and, it, and we are controlled by it. Or there's this other idea which says, well, no, actually, you, know, you can actually move some of these devices out of the, the, the realm of, of political economy, and they can function. You, know, you can create broadsheets, you can create sort of hit-and-run video. Um, that you know, not all blogs or, or posts is necessarily going to be uh, frat boy fodder. You know, there are. St I still find fascinating stuff coming off the. You know, the feeds I subscribe to. Still, a yeah. moment in the day I really enjoy is is seeing what you know, seeing what Iron Nine's got to say, what Boing Boing's got to say. Um, these, there's still some. Incidentally, I, I, I did a. Uh, I interviewed uh, David Peskovitz of Boing Boing a while back, and one of the things we were discussing was this. Was this, uh, this um, Do people know what Boing Boing is? It's, yeah, it's a very popular blog on it. It was originally a, a sort of early cyberzine um, in the early 90s, and then it, it stopped being a print format and went online, and it's now this enormous clearinghouse for weird and wonderful information. Um, and it's got something like 4 million subscribers. I mean, during the. Um, I think it's boing boing is the first thing I'm asking you to qualify, actually. I'm not doing my job. There's been quite a lot of stuff. But it, the, this news story had come up that um, the, the White House had, had, uh, had revealed that, that Barack Obama um, subscribes to boing boing, you know, reads boing boing, but only the comments. What? <laughs> and and, and, and the press was saying, and I'm going to. That's the last bit we read. No one reads the comments on Boy. It's a whole other planet for yeah. Boy comments. Just read the stories. I don't read what they're saying. <laughs> but then the point about that is, is it a utopia if it's just a small group of people who think it's a utopia? Well, well you there must the be someone who thinks yeah. these comments on Guardian are their utopia. They manage to, you know, all these wonderful comments at the bottom of websites are ideal. It's their dream come true. <sighs> 
It's okay. So in India, um, all these e-governance initiatives, they've introduced universal ID cards, biometric ID cards. It's had overwhelming support. There's been very little argument against it because the idea is it makes our lives better. It makes it easier, easier for us to claim benefits, pay our bills, deal with the police, and combat corruption and bureaucracy. So it's okay. I wonder if there's a difference between... Because I always find um, the English especially... Uh, to kind of fetishise nature and they, you know, they, they want their own little bit of land and the real world is, is, you know, is wonderful. And there might be that feeling that the government or whoever is encroaching on your kind of personal private space that I own this and you know, nobody's going to get in here. In the States, there's, there's very definitely a kind of anti-government thing. So the, the government, you know, you really can't, I own this and, you know, that's what the kind of idea of privacy in, in the States is about, in England, I wonder if it's about, you know, actual real world space. Is there anything similar in, in India? Mm. I mean, people distrust <laughs> the government in India because it um, is so corrupt and there are so many problems and the bureaucracy is a problem, but at the same time they support these initiatives. Now, I, don't, I can't explain why. I don't yeah. even know why. Maybe it's because they do them well and they actually do work. And that's a good example of where the government does work, when in so many things it doesn't. Um, but, I mean, it would be interesting to comp compare this to China. Um, and I don't know China so well, but, um, you know, they're, they're following a similar kind of development model to India, which is throw lots of technology at um, our problems, of our economic problems, and build scientific societies, and we will grow because of that. Um, I don't know what the view of... Um, Chinese people is to that. I don't know how they feel about it. I, I, an interesting perspective um, in terms of, of what's happening is in, in, in India is that, um, of course, it was Norbert Wiener who came up with the term cybernetics, wrote the book on cybernetics, did the maths. Uh, you'd have to do the maths with a name like Norbert Wiener, wouldn't you? But um, he, you know, who felt incredibly alienated by the, the scientists around him, certainly by the time we get to the Cold War, um, felt that he didn't have any kind of camaraderie with scientists anymore. There was, there was some he wouldn't talk to them. I mean, if they were in the same department, he wouldn't, if he wanted to talk to them, he wouldn't actually step into their office. He'd actually stand at the threshold of the office and sort of shout at them because he didn't actually want to step onto what he considered to be government property or property that had been underwritten by Bell Telephone or something like that. Um, Alienated to the point of almost paranoia, you know, he was investigated by the FBI at one point. And where does he go? Where does he, where does he turn to say, this is, this is the future, this is going to be the technological world of the future? He looks at India, he goes to India and lectures there and, and you know, does a lot of his writing there. And, and you know, he was calling it for, you know, 40, 50 years ago, this is where it's going to happen. And he got it right by the sound of things. I think I'd like to open um, this conversation up to members of the audience. Before anyone asks any questions, um, I'm sure you're all dying to, um, I should let you know that this is being recorded and uh, it's going to be put up on the Little Athens website. So if you object to that, either let me know and I'll edit it out um, or don't ask a question. Yeah, and also we know where you all live. So. Oh yeah, and that, exactly. We've, we've, we've scraped the location data off your iPhones as you were coming in. So that's a good thing. Exactly. <laughs> Um, does anyone have any questions for our panel? Lady in the front row. Yeah, thinking about Gia's comment uh, about us English kind of fetishizing nature and, and things like that, I was wondering 
based on our culture and also our kind of sci-fi backgrounds, how that compares to more Eastern countries. Um, thinking of the robot boy in Japan, how that the difference with say Hans Christian Andersen and um, Pinocchio. You know, Pinocchio was technology, but he wanted to be a real boy. And in almost all our sci-fi that I can think of, it's, it's about how fantastic being human is. And how, how our emotions make us special and the shortness of our lives, maybe it's just we want to feel better about it. But um, we have this fear of technology, even though we love technology, we love our sci-fi, but it is quite often you know, you're put there in jihad or your Terminators or our know, robot, you know, anything. And maybe uh, in other countries it's different, I don't know, is there, maybe there's nothing like that, or maybe they just look one of the most yeah, one of the most frightening visions, isn't it, is, is the is the, the the astronauts lost in space looking for their home planet, and they get there, but it's not Earth. You realise halfway through they're all robots, and that's that's the that's the terrifying nightmare of technology. It's an interesting question, you know, is it only England? Is it only the West that has this fear of technology? I don't know. It was a Czech playwright who came up with the term robot. Uh, in the first place. Um, I, I wonder whether it's more a, a, a kind of universal uh, preoccupation, the notion of, something, of, of creating a replica of ourselves, something that is us, but at the same time is not. Um, and I think, you, know, you, find, you find versions of this kind of myth going back into, into ancient history, you know, the creation of, or even, even our own creationist myths, the notion of, of Adam being created out of, out of the earth and, and Eve out of Adam. I think one of, an early science fiction novel is um, The New Eve um, by Villiers de Ladin, um, man who wrote Axel's Castle. He wrote this fantastic novel about creating an electrical woman. Actually, Edison creates the electrical woman. He's actually one of the characters in the novel, and she's called Hadelay. And I think she's, quite, she's a kind of key character in uh, Sadie Plant's Zeros and Ones, which I still think is, is, is just one of the most fantastic texts on the relationship between uh, cyberspace and, and gender and identity. I think it's still a, a really functioning template there. But I think she writes quite a lot about, uh, about uh, Hadelay and the New Eve in, in that particular book. So I think you'll find... This kind of this extension of ourselves, the complete automatic, you know, self self governing, self replicating, autonomous version of ourselves, turns up again and again and again. So I don't I don't think we necessarily have a have a, 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 a monopoly on it. Um, isn't this actually what's driving a lot of the fear about where the web is take where the web is taking us? Going on from Angela's point that we made the internet in our own image, it is this. Thing that is us and is not mm. us, exactly as you say, and that's why we're kind of beginning to freak out about it. Perhaps oh. I don't know. I don't well, know. do you think a freak out's good now and again? Do you think it's a, <laughs> well? It's lovely it's to see. It's lovely to see the entire legal world freaking out about <laughs> Twitter and super injunctions right now. Less charming to see the media world calling it a free speech campaign, but yes. you know. We'll see. They do have this kind of Frankenstein impulse to create, to almost be like gods, create mm. things. Um, and puppets, we have puppetry in pretty much every country in the world, and I think that's what robots are a logical extension of that. It's Stuart Brad's beginning to the whole Earth catalogue, isn't it? We are as gods, and we may as well get good at it. It's, it's but that's what we fear as well, that we get good at it. And then we create something. Listen, really I'll good. get good at being God when God gets good at being God. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Science fiction notes have been used to kind of discuss the questions that a society needs to ask about 
itself. And I, I, one of the things that um, I, was, I was talking about recently with um, Jurassic Park, there's a new big dinosaur season on the BBC, talking about Jurassic Park and you know, genetic engineering. And it's always, it's always really negative in, in um, science fiction. And those discussions need to happen in a society, but I don't think films are where the answers should come from. And I do think that, that because they're so popular, they do change people's minds about genetic engineering, for example. There's no, I mean, I can't think of really positive films about genetic engineering. No, it's no. all really, so, and actually, when you really, I'm, I, I like genetic engineering, I think it's quite a good thing, you know? It, it would be really good if I knew that my children, for example, were born without any genetic diseases. I a brilliant thing doesn't mean that I'm going to, you know, choose a blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy all the time. I just want a healthy kid. And so these, these discussions about scientific topics are skewed by, by science fiction. It may be timely to mention, I think the Chelsea Flower Show will be the first public acceptance of genetic engineering, you know, and they display <laughs> the polka dot rose, and then everyone, well, the English at least, will love it. Um, any other, any, any questions from the audience? Gentlemen uh, there. Can it just simply be that uh, a lot of the criticism on technology is some kind of overhang from the Romantic period, where you had the dichotomy between technology, which is inherently bad, inherently evil, and then nature, which is the kind of uh, utopia at that period. And it's still persistent, this idea of the dichotomy between nature and technology that are um, dominating a lot of our culture, while in at least some Asian countries um, technology is seen as an addition to nature, some enhancement of nature, and therefore they, they are easier to adopt this. Because Keats hated Arcadia and Utopia, didn't he? I mean, that was... Is that strand still running 100 years, 150 years later? I think, yes, I think, I think in a sense a, lot, a large amount of green politics, uh, a lot of environmental thinking that somehow, you know, the planet is inherently good and what we do is inherently evil. Um, seems to be the you know the, the the perspective of someone who's never seen one animal eat another. Um, you know that, that actually, you know the only person I think in the in the in the sort of early Romantic period who really understood nature was the Marquis de Sade. You know who said you know you know you have this you have this cruel dispassionate creature with her crucible who just drops living things into it and they all melt and sort of you know merge with each other and then creates new beings out of it. That's your nature. Um, and of course he was speaking as a small minority in a madhouse at the time, but I mean, I, I, think, it's, I think it's a view we can, we can, we can sympathise with now. I, I'm kind of, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm reminded of a conversation, a, a, a panel like this, early 90s, probably around about the time when you were, you were sort of, you know, powering up your modem at the BBC, and the ICA had a conference on, on technology, the future of technology, and um, the, I, I was invited along because two of the speakers were Arthur and Mary Louise Croker, people you don't really hear a lot from these days, but who wrote some fantastic books in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, with titles like Digital Delirium and Spasm and um, Excremental Culture and Body Transformers. And they, they were a couple of Canadian academics who were just 
ridiculously playful. I mean, they were the kind of people who say, well, you know, I do my best writing at the McDonald's. You know, and, and, uh, and um, th- so they've been invited to take part in this conference, and the ticket price was ridiculous. And um, th- there was this kind of interesting parade of people talking about, you know, the wonders of cyberspace and the, you know, the, the information superhighway. That's how long ago this conference was. <laughs> they were actually talking about this, and you had um, some. A uh, bright young thing um, from from an art gallery uh, um, in Cambridge saying, "Oh, it's going to be fantastic! You know, we'll be able to create artworks online that will be able to send us postcards, and it'll be wonderful. No one will actually own art anymore. It'll just completely um, undermine the value system in, in 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 the art world." Yeah, that worked, didn't it? And um, and then there then there was some um, Tweedy academic who droned on about Heidegger for what seemed like three days um, and used the word Flintstone so many times that the that the moderator finally had to say, are you actually talking about Fred and Wilma? Um, and, and then Arthur and Mary Louise Croker came on at the end and they did readings from what was their new book at the time, which was called Tales from the Flesh-Eating Nineties. And they were stories about people that they'd met on their travels who had tried to take their own lives, had branded themselves, had, had got involved in, in strange body modification cults. And it just really bummed the entire audience out. They, they did not want to hear about a guy who'd blown his head off after selling someone a Toshiba television set. I thought that was great because Toshiba had actually sponsored the conference. But they didn't want to hear. They did not want to hear this, this, this version of, of the new bright reality. And, you know, so they got a lot of stick for this. And, and so, you know, why, well, why isn't it going to be Utopia? And they said, well, you can have Utopia, but it's going to be Jurassic Park and there will be, there will be raptors in it. And there should be raptors in it because, you know, Newt Gingrich has just said he wants a laptop in every home. Um, Commercial activity online has just become legalised. It is going to become the tool of business. It was always going to become the tool of business. Wake up. Um, And it was people just did not want to hear it, you know, that long ago. And and it's only just beginning to sink in now, I think. Certainly with this chair, anyway. Yeah, it's interesting because when, when you said, and the chap who asked the question has gone off now. And who can blame it? But, but indeed, but when, when you said, oh, I think that sort of unbridled sort of love of, of nature is, is, is the similar thing. I mean, this is the, it's of a piece with the, the sort of network utopianism that I was talking about before, that nature is somehow a system that self-corrects itself, when in fact, chaotic acts happen all the time that completely, you know, turn the ecosystem Sort of massive changes in the ecosystem by sort of one-off random acts, and similarly here, you know, I mean, how how does it feel having been so naive? The, the interesting thing is that all it all sort of goes in tandem with actually becoming not naive about all sorts of boring things like savings and pensions and just sort of growing up generally. I, I, there, there probably are going to be ideas like this every ten years, just to keep the naive and young naive and young for the period that it's healthy for them to be so. We've all grown up a lot since then. Yeah. <laughs> I've grown up in the last hour and a half, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, are there any other questions in the audience? I see two now. So we've we're, we're sparking some of it. I'll go with this gentleman here first. Uh, yeah, you've mentioned the Twitter and the whole super thing a couple of times. And, uh, it, it's not I, like I'm going to lead questions from the audience. <laughs> no, but it, that, I mean, it's always been topical. It kind of highlights something I'm interested in, which is the difference between the rate of evolution of culture online. Uh, compared to the regular rate of evolution of culture that's been going on in the real world. Um, and so, I mean, if you go online, you, you very quickly, after a while, you sort of get to know how social media, how it works, how to get in 
trolls exist, what memes are. You, you sort of, get, after a while, the more time you spend, the more you get used to the, the ebb and flow of the information on the internet, how you, how you get your information, how you talk to people, how you communicate, the very fast nature of it, having tabs open, all this sort of thing. Uh, and then you go back into the real world and you realise that people who aren't on the internet are a very completely different pace of information. You might know things, but something might come up into the mainstream media and people start talking about it in the real world. And you knew about that weeks ago, months ago, and, complete, and you've already wicked it, you've done all these things. And, uh, and the whole thing about the judge trying to say, right, well, we've got to try and put a stop to this. We've got to try and, you know, see if we've got a clamp on Twitter. As if Twitter's some thing that exists by itself. They don't realise that it's the internet. You could shut Twitter down and, and people would still go online and still put all this information out. You can't. It's like trying to put a cage on fog. Uh, and if you realise that these people in the real world just don't get it. And you only really get it if you kind of spend time online. And, and there's becoming this more and more people who are online uh, have got uh, sort of up to date with how this new information works. And so many people in the world just are still waiting to read it on the front page of the paper, waiting for the BBC to tell them. Uh, Pity Ken, he knew the, the utopianism was going to be over in 1992, so you know, he's been waiting for us to catch up for 19 years. But it's been so. worth it just so I could hear someone actually say, people in the real world don't <laughs> get it. <laughs> I was just thinking that, when will we stop calling um, this the real world <laughs> yeah. and that a different world? Um, they're the same. I my opinion about this whole injunction thing it, it is m more about the press than the internet. Because people on Twitter wouldn't know any of this if the press didn't feel that they had the right to intrude into someone's private life. And that it would be private. And I think there's a very clear line, in my mind at least, about what is, what is someone's personal private information and what is of public interest. And I don't, personally, I don't think the sex life of the, it, anyone, I mean, there, there's a, maybe a few instances where a politician's sex life might be of interest for hypocrisy reasons, for example. Generally, I just don't think that the press should publish private things. And, um, oh, this is being recorded, so I won't say anymore. <laughs> Well, if you look, actually, there's there's a list on the line somewhere about all.
all of the, because states have different privacy laws. So there's federal laws and there's state laws. Oh. So, so it depends on, on where you're at. But um, there isn't anything in this country. To protect uh, your... To protect, well, that, we'll see. I mean, there, there, is, there is the Human Rights Act. I think, I think the yeah, exactly. Control. But yeah, we'll see. We'll I see think it's interesting that, the, the, solid. Yeah. that we're talking about <laughs> sex scandals in particular, because I mean, one of the things I found very interesting about, about the way in which the, the mainstream media, can we use that term to describe? The real world. Yeah, the mainstream media. media. The, way they were, the way they were covering uh, WikiLeaks, particularly Julian, Julian yeah. and so on, they really didn't have anything that, they could, that, they, that would feed into their kind of machine that they could comment on uh, in, 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 the, in a customary manner until the, the, the sex scandal uh, erupted and, and Assange is in, is in court and then they had a story and then they could run with it 24 hours a day but when, you know, when you're talking about a, you know, a, a, a file of emails on uh, American relationships with Pakistan that needs its own index you know, they, they can't deal with it, they can't think it through and, and so I think in a weird kind of way the sex scandal is probably all they're going to have left and, and strangely enough, not being able to talk about it in the end will probably be the last thing they'll have left. So I, let them have their day. <laughs> you know, the sad thing, as a journalist, um, uh, I don't know if this is a good thing for me to be saying or not, but I knew about the Andrew Marr affair years before it came out recently. Um, and that's the wonderful thing about being a journalist. You're party to information that you don't always share with everybody. You keep stuff back. And now we can't do that anymore, which is kind of sad, because I feel like that, that's the point. that nice thing about being a journalist, we've lost. <laughs> don't but have any more. I thought your point was lovely about when are we going to stop calling it the real world versus <laughs> the, the online world. I'd like to kind of follow up from that. Who won? Did the online, like, who subsumed who? Because I feel like, actually, it was the real world that subsumed the online world, as Ken was saying, with its brutal realities, as it was always going to. I'm not so sure now, as I might have been ten years ago, that the law couldn't regulate a thing like what's happening on Twitter, eventually. I mean, if you think uh, over the past six or seven years, the way that national law enforcement have managed to coordinate to, for example, remove images of the sexual abuse of children online, that was something that in the 90s, even then, people were saying, you can't do that because information wants to be free and because, you know, you might want to do that, we might all want to do that, but technically you can't, technologically you can't do it. That's changed. We're seeing the domain name server system now being co-opted as a form of internet regulation. I mean, that's hardcore. You really can control the internet if you control that. And so, I don't know. I mean, I'm, 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 a, I'm a, a recovering digital utopian, so I'm not sure I share, share the same, the same um, conviction that they can't, that it is this sort of, what did you say? Fog, trying to cage fog. Yeah, I mean, to me it seems like a Canute-like uh, emotion trying to hold back this tide of information. Because you're talking about privacy and to me, I think that's a, sort of a, an auxiliary issue. I'm really talking about information, and it, it, what, the thing is that you were saying earlier about how oh, all these people came online and you know made it irritating. And yeah, uh, uh, you know, anyone reads the comment section feels nauseous. We all do. But um, the, the truth is, that the, 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 yeah, the, I thought you were going to wonder. It's just an exclamation of despair. But, um, <laughs> uh, but the truth is that the more people are online, the better it gets. Um, particularly when you think about the wiki paradigm and the more people contributing to things like the wiki paradigm or 
or any of these uh, data. I mean, it's, it's data. The more information is, the more data is. The more data is, the better it gets. And the more people, at the beginning, it's a bit chaotic and no one knows what's going on, but as the online culture develops, you get more, um, you just get more people understand the, the etiquette of being online. And, and, and to be honest, I know you said you haven't read the comments in a couple of years, and, and you know, it's still terrible, but it has actually got a bit better. I mean, and to be honest, I try to comment, even on YouTube, in an intelligent way to, in order to encourage people to be more intelligent. And I think it is kind of working. Maybe it's just me, but then... It is interesting to watch the evolution of the web. It's like being in SimCity. It is like a SimCity and we are all the Sims. Um, and we can't know what's going to happen next. How can we possibly? We just assume that it's going to get better. We're going to ask the centre in the glass. It was just totally related to what the chat just said, which is uh, I, I really I take issue with what Gio was saying. Just, I, mean, I remember 94 till 2004, you know, I imagine the portion of insufferable, pompous idiots is probably fairly <laughs> similar to how it is now. And I remember having dreadful discussions with people during that, during that period of time, and there, just, there were fewer of them, but it, you know, I think the proportionally was probably quite similar. But like now, um, these days I'd also say that it's, very easy to sell filters and excise people who you're not particularly keen on um, in the same way that we form on relationships in, in real life too. Um, you know, like you were saying, you just don't read the comments. a very good way of, of filtering out distaste uh, yeah. comments. But equally, you know, you can block a number of friends. You can just, if you want to, you form your own communities in a very similar way to real life. And I think, you know, um, it, it only takes one great person to suddenly show up to kind of give thanks So yeah, maybe this is more a therapy session for the panelists. <laughs> but that's interesting. That's had two reports that it's getting better online. Would that tempt you to go back to the comments, Jeeves? No, really. You've had two people tell you it's 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 great out there, but no, still no. No, I I mean because I do occasionally dip in. Yeah, I mean even on just random things like YouTube videos, and it's just you know it's. We've had two recent guests on Little Atoms, John Lanchester and then yesterday Adam Curtis, who keep their online profiles deliberately low because they feel timid or just feel like it's not worth their time to engage with a lot of what's going on online. Lanchester in particular felt that he couldn't sort of, I don't know, put on the mask that he felt was necessary to engage with, with people online. I don't know, what's the, as a writer now of nearly three books... And, um, what's your what's your response as a writer to that? Are you someone who engages online a lot? Um, I, I blog regularly. I'm I'm happy to do it. I enjoy doing it. I'm very aware that what I'm presenting isn't me. Mm. Um, the I mean, it's KenHollings.blogspot.com. Subtitles, information, it's art form. That's all that it is really about me. The only the, the occasions when it intrudes, though, my own life intrudes on on what I'm writing about. The responses are sometimes really fascinating. Um, I, I was really surprised to discover I'd, I'd, I'd had this really awful experience um, in a, a, at a conference in Whitstable in February, in which um, I was at the hotel where all the, the conference members were, were, were staying. I happened to get the room that was next to the drunken, insane man who threw himself out of his window and landed on the balcony below. 
um, amidst shattering glass and all kinds of unspeakable violence, which happened at sort of half past two in the morning. Um, my only way to sort of like deal with all this, because it's happening right next to me, you know, while I'm dialing the police and saying, I think we need an ambulance, um, was, you know, so I wrote about it. I, I thought it was the only thing I could do. And um, I posted the account online. And it, it, it didn't really occur to me when I was posting the account that I was naming the people that were, that were around me. And, and, and it started turning, people started uh, tweeting about this blog post saying, you know, uh, Ken Hollings uh, has written this incredible account of this horrible night that he spent in, in, in a hotel room, made really surreal by the appearance of several musicians and wire contributors. <laughs> <laughs> Because you know, the guy had come from the window next to my room and had landed on the balcony next to David Toops, I think is how, is how it ended. And, and um, I was really kind of, I was a bit startled by that. And, and people don't normally comment on my blog. I don't think there's much to comment on. I like it when people correct things. I'm, I'm, I love that. I think that's really useful. I think that, that element of commenting is valuable. If you say information's free and there is a, a, a torrent of it... Um, not all of it is, is, how can I put it, relevant. Not all of it actually is correct. And I'm always immensely grateful when, when someone actually says, you know, actually, um, you know, Alan Shepard didn't go into suborbital flight on his first takeoff. You know, he just went up and then came down again in 15 minutes. You know, for some reason, I've always had this childhood, childhood impression that, 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 you know, the first spaceman of the free world had actually gone into orbit when he hadn't, you know. So... It was a broken dream, but I'm glad someone actually posted a comment. Um, that kind of thing I find very useful. But there is always this kind of, you know, who am I writing about? Am I writing about Ken Hollings, the writer, and what I'm doing, the people I meet, events like this? Um, or, you know, is there occasionally these, these, these biological incidents that suddenly occur um, that I feel I have to write about because otherwise it... it the, the blog itself wouldn't make sense, you know, why, why there's a sudden hiatus or whatever. That's the thing, even, even on the internet, you're in charge of your own privacy. And you are you are in control of what you show to the world, and mm. this is the issue that I have with it. Your personality <laughs> changes, I think. You ha- you adopt a different persona, right? oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Um, and it becomes worse the more you get interaction with people because you feel the need to suppress. Maybe you're, you won't be sarcastic because sarcasm doesn't translate so well, or you won't be as ironic because people won't, it doesn't translate yeah, so well. Yeah. And then you find yourself confused about which. Which of the personalities is yours? That's a weird thing. I've, I've pretty much stopped blogging. <laughs> 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 a gradual retreat in back into the real world. Almost. But I think it also yeah. illustrates just how satirical the notion of utopia must be because it, it, it must inevitably involve some kind of, either some kind of imposed selection, otherwise who we're going to let in and who we're not going to let in, or it's going to suppress behaviour, what's going to be allowed and what isn't going to be allowed, or ultimately we end up censoring and repressing and being selective about ourselves. In other words, you know, utopia is not going to be the place, as, as, as Norman O'Brown once said, you know, that environment in which we can all run wild. No one's going to be allowed to run wild in utopias. No one's going to be allowed to pee in the pool in, in it'd utopia. Like a country club. Huh? It'd be like a country club. It would be like a country club. And, and who, wants, who wants to be a member of yeah. <laughs> So I think utopia is a joke we play on ourselves, and we're continuing to do it. Actually, you and I first met at a project called OpenDemocracy.net that was absolutely committed to the idea that online dialogue could somehow bring together different communities to could resolve their issues. Um, neither of us work there anymore. I wonder, do you still believe in that vision? Um, it's a really highfalutin vision. <laughs> and there were a lot of academics who wrote for Open Democracy, and 
a lot of academics read it, and I'm not sure how much it reached out beyond that. I'm sure it did, mm. but not as much as we would have hoped, I think. And that's, yeah, just like Ken said, that's a problem with utopia, is that your utopia is not somebody else's. And so when you get into this little group, it ruins it when other people turn up. Yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. Do we have any other questions from the audience? Um, yeah, gentlemen, the card. Um, I'm a software developer. I'm trying to make new and exciting webby things in, in London, and it's all great. And it makes me really sad to realise, actually, just makes me right, people in Britain are so sort of scared of new, new technology, and sort of, I don't feel as though I'm dragging them along, kicking and screaming into these new and wonderful things I well, hopefully wonderful things I want to build. Is there anything that can be done? Can you can can the can change the country? And if not, where should I live? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, so this just turned into gardener's questions. <laughs> I think you should live in Bangalore. That's that's my advice. <laughs> Um, I think any, any software developer should probably move to Bangalore yeah. pretty quickly. <laughs> Go east, young man. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, that's where it's happening. I just want to know, how do, you, how do you change a culture? It's a cultural thing. Yeah. If people are naturally f- afraid of technology, then I don't know what you do about that. You can't make Well, I've got a 14-year-old boy, so it'll be interesting to see what kids who've grown up yeah. with access to the internet are like, because it's a... You know, I, I've, I've never been afraid of technology, you're using technology and you've been on the internet and and it's not even anything that I think you would think was worth discussing yeah. technology, it's just like air yeah. so that might be a big change I think The one thing that Britain does bring to or did bring to the web conversation was the British Broadcasting Corporation, it was the BBC I think we had a really strong sense early on for how strong the internet could be as a, as a place to archive material, to access material, to materials for the public good. I mean, it was messed up a little bit by internal politics at the BBC that meant we couldn't make this archive massively available. Also, we, um, we, we could harbour all of our kind of dot-com crash survivors at the BBC Media and New Technology Unit until the next dot-com boom. So that was also a very, you know, you, you found that the, go, and work, go east or go and work for the BBC, I think it's, it's, it's the gardener's question time. Yeah, but I mean, that, but to me, the BBC is a classic example of, 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 of how you fudge a really complex, challenging issue. I mean, I, you know, the idea that, that something is only available on iPlayer for a week. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. What, what is that about? <laughs> It's, it's, that's just stupid. It's, it's, you know, it's, I mean, the bandwidth isn't that enormous. I mean, it wasn't so long ago um, that they were talking about putting everything online. So yeah. you know, just like NASA's put all of their material online because, you know, hey, the American people paid for it. So there it all is. Use the images, use the footage any way you want. Um, I seem to remember we paid for the, the BBC content. I think that was what the license fee was for, yeah. 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 So why can't we see it anytime we want? I would, I would actually not mind if they kept Top Gear behind a paywall so they could still turn <laughs> to America and just put the rest of it online. I think that would probably be quite cool. Um, I'm going to wrap things up, I think, in, in a minute, unless we have any more burning questions from the audience. Um, Play in the front, I think. I'm not quite sure if it's a question. That's all right. I don't think any of these would be... It's something I'm kind of grappling with, and I feel like I'm a bit of a dinosaur in this whole gathering, because it's kind of the whole social media, internet... It's something which I kind of approach, you know, okay, let's see what can happen. Um, but it's really about a number of comments that have been made. One is about the me media. Somebody said, 
And actually, you just, in the end, it just becomes about getting Twitter from your friends. And actually, as opposed to broadening horizons, can it easily kind of, yes, narrow horizons? Do we just get caught up in what we want to know and not actually go further? Um, secondly, uh, what is it that we choose to reveal about ourselves? You know, everyone's admitted that there's only a partial revelation. Maybe that happens all the time, but in the real life, actually, there are many other, many other signs. Smell, touch, sitting there, getting drunk together. You kind of, you know, you develop social trust. And actually, can that happen? And is that a really important missing component? What ways can social trust be engendered? And thirdly, I suppose it was probably to make both of them, your, both your comments about open democracy, about how in the end it became about one specific community speaking to another. Again, I suppose it's the me media, just a narrow casting. Um, and academic to academic. So, you know, do we run the risk of closing down and how do we create social trust? Well, we all had a good sniff of each other, didn't we, before um, before we came on? Had a good sniff of each other. Yeah. Oh yeah, we're, yeah, we're, 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 we're very big on our non-verbal communication skills. I think that's. But that, actually, that it brings up an interesting point. I was I was recently asked by a, um, a museum to write a, a short text that was going to go on the wall um, to. Um, sort of get children, 10-year-old children, which is not my specialist subject by any means, you know, um, to sort of think about the future of technology. And, and, and I thought, I, I've got nothing. I, the reason I haven't got anything to say to a 10-year-old about the future of technology is that they already know more about it than I do. They, it, would be, it would be ridiculous, arrogant, to start talking to them about the future of technology. It would just be stupid. So in the end, I just wrote a text about animals. And, and said, you know, actually animals are going to teach us an awful lot about communication in the future because they actually understand how to make connections with the world around them. You know, that they actually, they, they actually do organise themselves. They do create networks which are far more fluid and far more intangible and, and important than, than, than we're capable of at the moment. You know, that, that, you know, there has been... Certain, and yeah, and I mean, to, to, an, to an extent, that's already beginning to... You know, some, some, some AI people are already looking at things like ant algorithms, hive minds, swarms, um, etc. You know, just actually looking at animal movement as the basis for artificial intelligence. So it's, it's already going on. But in a sense, your comment, the idea that there is so much more to communication than just words or, if we're lucky, music, moving pictures and music. You're absolutely right. I think it's amazing that we're still essentially talking about a communications medium that is essentially text-based. You know, it still hasn't crawled out of that particular um, uh, cocoon yet. Except your story, your Whitstable Balcony story, really got people going, didn't it? Well, it did really get... It was get... kind of more than just sort of ideas in the head. It was something quite sort of lived, in a way. Well, it was halfway towards the footballers, sort of dalliance with the big brother. Um, it, was, it was scandalous. Someone fell out a window, right? Uh, yeah, well, actually, it was either pushed it, either went out the window or was pushed out the window. It was, it was, uh, <laughs> you feel more of yourself than you normally do, but that immediately got people going, okay. Yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree. I mean, I have to say, mine is not a blog that... There are kind of, actually, I find blogs that people don't comment on usually the ones I'm really interested in. People don't really say very much about the posts because the posts themselves are just so nicely self-contained and interesting that, that, that they almost kind of rebuff comment. And uh, those I actually find very interesting. I think, they're, I think they're an art form in themselves. That said, I still think scent trails, touch, all of these things 
can't, you know, can't do without them. I'm tempted to kind of ask you for your closing remarks to answer the question that was posed at the beginning of this session, which way to techno-utopia, although I think that's massively unfair, because I wouldn't have the first clue how I would answer Well, it's your show, you can be as unfair as you like. I know. So, yeah. which way to techno-utopia? Um, I, I, I think it's been and gone. I don't think there's any way, any way to find it. So what's your 14-year-old? He's going to have a whole different utopian ideal to be crashed, you know, and, and broken into... A, oh, a yeah, that's going to involve, like, plugs in the back of his head or something. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to be the internet. Angela, what about you? I think it's in the East. <laughs> so we could all just very easily migrate and would be there tomorrow if we wanted to. Wherever it is, it's, it's not here, basically. Well, if you're there, then it's here. So yeah. for those people, it's there. Um, sure. So it's not like the pot, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It's not like you're always chasing it. But then again, you know, there are problems all over the world, and I'm not saying it's ideal. It's not ideal, but it's heading in that direction. Ken? I think wherever it is, it's going to have one very, very rigid door policy. <laughs> and I very much doubt whether they'd let me in. <laughs> Can you join me in thanking Ken Hollings, Angela Saini and Gia Milanovic? You've been listening to Little Atoms. You can find details of upcoming guests at our website, littleatoms.com. The Little Atoms podcast is available on iTunes. Thanks for listening.